Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. It's a brand new year. And what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those, I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, good morning to you. Good morning, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm all right. How's your mood today? Have you been asked to write a piece about how Aston Villa's win on Saturday is proof that Unai Emery was treated harshly at Arsenal and booted out too quickly? Not today, not yet. <laughs> um, but, you know, give it some time. I, I, I'm pleased, by the way, for one listener that it, we haven't said "goodly morning," but because I noticed uh, in my replies last week to the podcast, one guy who was like, "I'll start listening to the podcast again when you stop saying goodly morning." I <laughs> really. And I thought I had this image <laughs> in my mind of this guy who every week downloads his podcast, and he's like, "Right, hopefully this will be the week that they just say." They don't say it. And then we go, goodly morning. And he's like, for fuck's sake, and immediately throws his phone across the room. Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult one because usually the, the goodly morning is connected with an Arsenal win. You know, this he's is- probably listening today, to be honest. He can listen. It's only safe for him to listen when we don't win. Yeah, but we've said you've said it a couple of times. You've mentioned those words. Maybe it's just those words. Anyway, look. We've you lost know, him now. We've lost we've him. Lost him. It, is, it is a shame that we, you know, don't look uh, after every single individual listener's needs. We're uh, alienating people, yeah. Andrew. We're alienating them. Oh, well. I can live with it. Listen. Such is life. It's not a goodly morning. It wasn't a particularly goodly weekend, all in all. No. No, I mean, it, to be fair, to be fair, Bournemouth did give us sure. something. In a weekend where it looked like City might lose, where it looked like Liverpool might lose, uh, when we lost... Spurs won. I, you, I, I'm, I count my blessings, actually. For the first time in my life, I'm thankful for rugby. 
<laughs> what, why is that? Well, we were going out for a couple of pints uh, yesterday evening, myself and, and my wife, and uh, we decided to go down to a bar where, you know, they have TVs on, and um, it's a good bar, good Sunday bar. Uh, and we walked in, and I went, holy fuck, there are a lot of Spurs and Newcastle fans in this part of Dublin. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that actually Leinster were playing rugby against somebody I don't know who. I didn't care to look at the screen for that long to find out. But the pub was absolutely packed with rugby fans. So we went and walked to a different pub, which had no TVs whatsoever. And I'm glad of that because had it been a sort of normal Sunday without rugby, that game would have been on. We've been sitting at the bar and I would have had to watch four goals. And as it turns out, I didn't. So thank you. For once to rugby, so yes, and thank you to Bournemouth for their efforts this weekend. Well, that that was very, 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 very funny. I was watching some of that on on Saturday, and whew, it was extraordinarily funny. I was very through. grateful for that sort of forty minute window between full time at Old Trafford and kick off at Villa Park, in which I could really revel in quite how spectacular <laughs> that was. Well, look, we do have to talk about what happened at Villa Park. And I think this is quite an interesting game. Um, We've lost away from home again. 1-0, perhaps not quite as contentiously as we did the last time we lost. 1-0 away from home, which was to Newcastle, of course. But there's a fair bit to unpack from this game. And, you know, there are things we're going to have to talk about because they happened in the game and there were decisions made and you know there there are many many questions about officiating and refereeing and all the rest of it which i think are a very valid part of the discussion of the game but i think the 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 main thing that i want to get off my chest at the top which is sort of how i titled yesterday's blog when i was writing about this was was the fact that Arsenal can feel aggrieved about all kinds of things if they want to, and, you know, in some ways quite rightly. But when you don't take chances, you are going to drop points. We were talking a little bit on Saturday evening, and you were pretty much convinced that this was three points dropped for Arsenal. And I was more of the, well, you know, one point, you know, probably might have been a fair result on the day. I don't think this is a game we deserved to lose based on how we played overall and based on some of the chances that we created. But but ultimately, if you don't take them, and that, that tone was set very early on with, with Bakayo Saka, you, you're going to get punished in this league. Yeah, I did think it was three points dropped. I, I still do. I think Arsenal should have won this game. I probably wouldn't have said that before kickoff, but seeing the way you know this game played out, the pattern of play how fatigued I thought Villa looked for spells after their exertions in midweek. Um, I really thought that this was there to be won if we had been at the requisite standards, Mm. uh, particularly in the final third. So, yeah, if I think back to Newcastle, obviously that was a game we lost, but it's not really a game it ever looked like we could win. Like, I think at best we dropped a point there. Whereas here, I think this game was so there to be won, uh, which was a surprise to me. And a disappointment that we didn't do it. Well, I mean, all the talk beforehand was about what Villa had done in midweek against Manchester City, which was very impressive. Yes, and very different. 
Correct. Very different. Like the bright start that they had is not a surprise considering how well they've been playing at home, considering their their recent form and all the rest. But this was not like us being dominated by Aston Villa in any way, I don't think. There were some chances for them, but once they went ahead, I think we we sort of grew into the game. There was a sloppiness to the way that we started. I don't know if that was to do with the conditions to an extent, but lots of um, misplaced passes, passes being overhit, passes being played in the wrong direction. That was a key feature, I think, of the first maybe 20 minutes of this game. We talk about chances. How good a chance do you think that that Bakayo Saka one was just before the Villa goal? Like, I don't think that's a tap-in or anything like that, but I do think a player of his quality probably had time to take a touch and maybe finish with his left foot rather than go first time with his with his right foot in that yeah. position, the cross from Gabriel Martinelli. I didn't think that at the time, but when I saw some replays, it struck me that, you know, that that could easily have been an option for somebody who moves the ball as quickly from foot to foot as he does. Yeah, yeah, I think potentially he can bring it under control. I mean, it's, it's clear what he's trying to do, right? He's trying to yeah. leave that side foot out and send it back the way it's come from. Um, it's one of those where it looks terrible, right? Because it, it flashes past him yeah. and he barely makes any contact, but probably it's a question of millimetres between that and him getting very clean contact on it. Uh, but it's definitely a half chance, for sure. Um, and then obviously Villa, you know, mm. straight out the other end and score. What do you think of this goal? Because our, we had this discussion maybe a couple of weeks ago where you look at a goal and you're looking at what you did wrong as a team when you concede a goal. And sometimes there is a passage of play which is, you know, it doesn't mean you're not at fault. It doesn't mean there aren't things that you could have done better, but you maybe sometimes have to take your hat off and say, actually, that is a very well-worked goal. Yeah, that's my feeling about it. I think it's a brilliant goal, actually. Uh, I don't get any pleasure out of saying that particularly, <laughs> but um, Emery did conjure one or two of these back-to-front goals during his time at Arsenal. And it's a move that goes right from the goalkeeper, Emery Martinez, all the way to the other end of the pitch. It's not perfect from an Arsenal perspective, but I think it's more about what they get right than yeah. what we get wrong. Yeah, because I've seen you know talk about Zinchenko on the goal, and look, he gets turned, but Gabriel is there to cover. Could he do more? Maybe. Um, ben White, could he get tighter to, to John McGinn? I mean, it's a very, very sharp turn and finish from McGinn in the box. Clearly, Ben White is unhappy with his role in it because of the way he reacts. If you look at how he sort of slams the ground in frustration, he thinks he should have done better. But I do think it is a very, very quick uh, turn. It's not as if he's nowhere near him. You know what I mean? It's, um, it's just a good piece of play, unfortunately. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I mean, as as McGinn's running into the box, Declan Rice and Ben White are both kind of with him. And I don't know if, if White half expects Rice to stay with McGinn, but obviously Rice goes towards the ball. Mm. I think when you look at the replays, you'd say Ben White would like... Yeah, I mean, you, you'd say he'd like to be closer, but I don't think you could underestimate how quickly McGinn spins on that and hits it. It's very, very quick. He takes it very early. I think it catches White off guard and probably even David Rice slightly off guard in the speed at which he's able to get that shot away. Um, so again, I'd sort of fall more on the side of 
unfortunately, it was just a very good goal. Yeah. Um, like I said, there were aspects of our game in the opening 20, 25 minutes, which were just not really good enough, you know, uh, for a team like this, uh, as technically good as it is, you know, some of the passes that we were overhitting, some of the passes that we were misplacing, just not great, but we did grow into the game. Um, I'm just reading the, uh, the live blog here and just to see sort of what, what sort of order we should go in when it comes to discussing some of the chances and some of the moments that we had uh, in that yeah. first half. And my eyes are drawn to an update on the uh, 35th minute, which says McGinn got a free kick for thrusting his massive arse into Rice's groin. He literally <laughs> twerked a free kick. Do you remember that bit? He was just standing there with his arse completely out. <laughs> Presenting, you make it sound very erotic. Presenting like a cat in heat. I don't know. It, sure. just, it just struck with me. But maybe you should get back on topic here and uh, talk well, shortly, about... Shortly, well, around that mark in the game, I remember Odegaard having a shot from the edge of the box that went you know, wide of the near post. It mm-hmm. was kind of the closest maybe that we'd come. It, it was a sort of interesting period because initially Villa took the lead and they were really blocking the centre of the pitch. And I was thinking, oh, this looks like quite hard work. But then there were two areas in which Arsenal, I think, were able to get at Villa. One was with the press. And I remember some good work from Kai Havertz in that half, closing down and winning the ball high up the pitch. Arsenal not always capitalising in those scenarios. And the other, which became a real theme of the game, was Aston Villa's high line. Yes, yes. And we did get a little bit of joy with that because um, there was the Martinelli moment when he went through and tried to lob the ball over Emmy Martinez. And, yep. uh, you know, I, I don't know if he was trying to just get it over him and then put it in himself, if it was a, a heavy touch or if he was going for goal. Um, in I that it was moment. a really interesting moment because it's Gabriel who plays the ball and it's a great, it's a really good pass, but it's also a pass he makes kind of a little bit out of necessity in mm-hmm. that, he gets the ball back and he's the last man and two Villa men go to close him down. And listen, he's a very good footballer, but he's not Zinchenko or Saliba in terms of his composure on the ball. And he just goes a bit more direct with it. And funnily enough, it's kind of exactly what Arsenal needed to be doing more of. Um, and yeah, Martinelli goes through. I mean, do you think he can do anything more once he gets there? Mm. I, I maybe think he can, I think he probably. I think, yeah. I think he's good enough that he could and should. Maybe I. Do, I wonder if he was caught in two minds. Either right. lob it over the goalkeeper and go straight for goal, or kind of do that little flick over the goalkeeper and take a touch and then roll it in. Maybe he got caught in two minds and and the ball ended up, you know, being neither one thing nor the other, and Villa got it clear. But you know, there were other moments. You know, you mentioned the Odegaard shot which went just wide and I think what was interesting about that shot when you consider what happens next is you know he tried to catch the goalkeeper out by going to the post he didn't expect yeah and it wasn't far wide and maybe maybe he would have had that covered but the chance that we got um a few minutes later I think it came when Villa lost the ball it could have been Martinelli or Zinchenko won the ball I think it was Martinelli. Uh, it was Martinelli just watching back. Yeah. And then he right. played in Havertz. Yeah. And it's a good ball from Havertz into the box. Jesus lays it off. First time, perhaps, there for Martin Odegaard on his right foot, but you can understand why he's going to go on his left. And this is where I think 
you know, he he made a decision, and of course, Captain Hindsight, it's really easy to say, but should he have tried the same kind of shot, you know, and go back the other way? Because I think if he goes back the other way, there's no way Martinez gets there. And if he goes with the angle that he went with, I think he's got to go higher with the shot than... Uh, and that sort of, you know, when a player takes a penalty and the commentator says, well, that was a very comfortable height for the goalkeeper. Mm. It was that kind of comfortable height, wasn't it? That is true. I mean, it's funnily enough, as I was watching this unfold, I was sort of saying to myself, wow, what a goal this is going to be because I yeah. really liked the run from Havertz. I liked the touch from Jesus. And actually, I know what you mean about first time for Odegaard, but every touch he took... I actually felt he was more likely to score, partly because he worked it onto his left, but also because I think a lot of goalkeepers would have been sat down by what Mikel, uh, Mikel Arteta, Martin Odegaard was doing. <laughs> yeah. Because he sort of almost dummies to hit it a couple of times. Mm. Um, I, you know, it's painful for me to do, but I do have to give some credit to Emmy Martin is there for standing up and staying on his feet. But yeah, I think Odegaard... We spoke about Ben White's reaction to the goal. Odegaard's reaction to the shot tells its own story. You know, yes. goes straight to the head. He had that extra time. He used it, I think, brilliantly. But the execution of the finish, he would expect to be better. Mm. At the other end, there was a moment as well, you know, in the cold light of defeat that we probably don't talk about too much. David Raya made a good save from Ollie Watkins. And that looked on to me, That I was to say. 100. I think if, if Watkins finishes that, and the flag is up, and then they check it. He's going to be onside there, so that would have been that would have yeah. been two nil. So I thought that was a good save too. Yeah. And funnily enough, it was one of those that was quite low and quite close to his body, a bit like in midweek, and, and he responded really well this time and made a really good save. Yeah, and I, I mean, listen, <laughs> the way things are going for us at the moment, all Arsenal fans would have known that had mm. that hit the net, it absolutely would have stood. So uh, a big moment. Um, should have been a bigger moment because, as I say, I feel Arsenal you know, should really have got something from this game. Right. So there's a big moment very early in the second half when Gabriel Jesus is kicked by Douglas Luiz and a penalty is not awarded. Um, I know you're maybe a little on the fence about this one in terms of whether it should be a penalty or not. Yes, but, I, but in the current yes. rule set... yes. I expected it to be one. I absolutely did too, because, you know, I was looking at it going, what would I, what would I think if Gabrielle or William Saliba had kicked Ollie Watkins in our box and the ref had pointed to the spot? Would I genuinely be able to hold my, uh, complain about that decision? No, I don't think so. I I agree. Like, I I think it was soft, to be honest. and, And obviously I think Jesus made the most of it, but I feel like you're seeing that penalty given week in, week out. Yeah. And again, we're talking about watching player reactions. I remember watching the replay and seeing a look cross Douglas Luiz's face after he'd hung his leg out like that, which, you know, suggested regret. It was, um, a, it was a kick and a slight little bit of a hook as well. Yeah. That's where I was really... Like, if it's one of those where the two players go and he sort of taps his leg, it was more the kind of little bit of a hook at the end that made me convinced that that was absolutely a penalty. And who knows, maybe I was being led by the commentary as well. I had Sky here and Jamie Carragher was saying, I think this is going to be given. Um, 
And sometimes the commentators have seen more replays or more angles, or maybe have had a bit of a steer on that from production. So, well, they've got the PGMOL in their ear as well. They can hear the, yeah, 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 yeah. constant dialogue. So, I think um, I, to be honest with you, in my mind, I was already going. I wonder who's going to take this. That's where I was. Mm. I think it's Uh, a penalty. I think we've been, I think we've been hard done by there. To be honest. Yeah. Look forward to hearing from our friend Dale about why that wasn't a a spot uh, kick. It'll be something about the threshold of overturning uh, yeah. the on-field decision. Yeah, yeah. But listen, I'm, I I really feel that one, I f- as I said, I feel like we're seeing those given. Well, I mean, you know, if you're talking about the threshold of, of overturning the on-field decision, you only have to look at the Crystal Palace penalty against Liverpool mm. to to put that in the context of what we're dealing with week in, week out. You know, if, if there's consistency and all the rest of it... Um, but of course, there isn't. Um, and I think that is Mikel Arteta's major objection. You know, he's kind of talked around it in press conferences a little bit. But I think for him, it's that threshold of involvement. You know, clear and obvious was the phrase he repeated after the game when questioned about it. But I, I do think that is his issue, the kind of semantics of that, you know, when is intervention appropriate? When mm. are we using it and when are we not? I think that's his biggest bugbear, to be honest with you. Uh, could well be. Could well be. I think he's probably got... Um, I think he's probably got multiple at this point. Multiple bugbears. Um, I think that's the primary one. And I mm. do think, like, that is just difficult, you know, to sort of kind of put a put a sort of very definite interpretation on those words and a very consistent interpretation on those words is proving very hard. Mm. So look, just before the halftime break, I wrote on the live blog, I think there's room to get in behind this offside trap. We just need to time the runs better. And I think we probably needed to make runs from deeper. And I'm really curious as to what you think about this, because I think that was something they discussed at halftime. I think... Kai Havertz continually made movements to make runs in behind because the focus was very much on catching Martinelli and Saka offside, which they did. You know, there was that moment when Saka put the ball in the net and he's offside, you know. I looked at it again. I was a little little dubious about how quickly they made that decision and we didn't see any lines, but I had a look at it again. It looks offside to me. So I'm not going to delve into anything uh, conspiratorial there. But what what sort of frustrated me a little bit about the second half was knowing that Villa were leaving all this space in behind, knowing that this was probably a conversation that they had at the break, Mm. you need to move the ball more quickly. And I got frustrated with... Alexander Zinchenko with the way that he stands on the ball and you know I understand what it is I understand what he's doing in the context of how we normally play but we're playing a a team with a very distinct approach to defending this high line this offside that they obviously have worked on so well and they must drill it on the training ground time and time again and I'm sure there's countless endless hours of video sessions uh, with Unai Emery to get <laughs> yeah. this right. Pray for those Aston Villa defenders, well, I, honestly. This is why I think ultimately Villa will fall away this season. I think I don't think actually playing like this is sustainable because teams uh, have developments in them, right? And you see it and you get a team and 
at first everyone's like, whoa, what the fuck is going on here? This is difficult. And then they suss it out. They figure it out. And I think that will happen to Aston Villa. But I, I also think that we failed to make the most of the space that Villa basically offered us. Yeah. I, I think we should have figured it out far better than we did mm-hmm. and far quicker than we did. I'm sure you're right. I'm sure they focused on it at half time. I mean, Mikel Arteta, obviously banned from the touchline, he couldn't have had a better vantage point of that high line yeah, and yeah, where yeah. the space was in this game. So I'm sure he would have been well aware of what Arsenal needed to do. Frankly, Arsenal ought to have been well aware heading into the game because this is how Villa defend. Mm-hmm. Um, and to their credit, they do do it well. You know, you see some high lines that are ragged and a bit of a mess. You know, this one is good. And if any group of fans can appreciate a good offside trap, it should be Arsenal fans. <laughs> Um, but nevertheless, we ought to have been better at breaking it down. And, and I wonder as well how much of a factor it might have been that we don't encounter this very often. This is not what we play week in, week out. This has not been the focus of the group, the coaching staff this season. It's been about breaking down massed ranks of a packed defence, you know, in those final 30, 40 yards of the pitch. Playing one over the top for Martinelli or Saka or Havertz to run onto has probably been not as high on the agenda. But isn't that what makes this result so frustrating? Because I'm not saying Villa played to our strengths, not not quite that, but we have players like Saka, like Martinelli, like Gabriel Jesus. We have craft in midfield from uh, Zinchenko, from Martin Odegaard. Uh, Even Declan Rice, you know, was getting in on the act. I think it was his pass uh, that went through to Bakayo Saka uh, for the goal that was disallowed. And you kind of have to recognize what you're up against. And it's easy if you've got 10 men behind the ball and the goalkeeper, it's easy to recognize what's going on. I just just think that some of the best moments we uh, made in this match came uh, when we did get in behind. You know, and I'm not saying it's like, oh, it's just easy, just do that, because it's not quite as easy as that. But I also think that there were times when Havertz was making uh, the run down the inside left channel, and this happened maybe two or three times in the early stages of the uh, of the fir- uh, second half, and we went backwards, or Zinchenko stood on the ball, he played it back, he got it back, he stood on the ball again, you know, he's waiting for somebody to engage so he can make the pass, and da-da-da. I wonder maybe if Havertz had a word with him on the pitch and said, look, you've got to give me that pass more quickly. When he did, it created what I think was a pivotal moment in this game for Arsenal. I think if Martin Odegaard scores that chance, we go on and win this game. And that ball, that chance came when Zinchenko lofted a beautiful ball over the top. Havertz ran onto it, crossed it for Odegaard, who has scored from there how many times for Arsenal? but has also, at Villa Park, two seasons in a row, missed the sort of chance that you would expect him to score. Absolutely, yeah. This was around the point in the game where I very loudly on Twitter said, I think Arsenal should go on and win this. Even though they were 1-0 down, I Mm. just couldn't see Villa lasting it because at that time they were fading, they looked tired, they weren't keeping hold of the ball. Arsenal were applying the pressure. There were these gaps in behind. And yeah, listen, it feels cruel to to kind of put the entire game on that moment, but it it is a pretty crucial point in it Mm -hmm. where I think if Arsenal had equalised, Villa would have struggled to keep them out. And 
Arsenal would have been energised and chased after a winner. Odegaard's become so consistent in those positions, but yeah. It's not not at Villa Park. No, you saw his reaction. If you mentioned his reaction after the uh, Martinez save, his reaction after this one told you told you plenty, you know. And it's not as if we didn't have time to get back into the game, but I just think if you score at that point, we were well and truly on top. Uh, it would have been one one, and who knows what happens to Villa at that point? Because goals change, obviously, the game and the 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 mindset to an extent and do Villa's heavy legs start to feel even more heavy yeah, after, absolutely. after, you know, we score a goal because I don't think if we'd scored there, anyone could have said that was undeserved from an Arsenal perspective. I don't think uh, even a Villa fan listening to this, no idea why they would be, but you know, no Villa fan could have said, well, you know, uh, that's out of the blue. I think Arsenal, you know, were on top of the game. But after that moment, I, I, you know, I think it maybe had the reverse effect. If we were wondering, like, what a goal would have done to, uh, to Villa, I wonder what that miss did to us. Because uh, I know the Saka moment um, where he was offside came just a couple of minutes later. But after that, Villa started to make changes, adding some fresh legs. And I think those substitutions um, helped them at a point where we were then beginning to question whether or not we could get anything out of this game. I know, good substitutions from Unai Emery. Wonders never cease. But I I, I think as well, they had a lead, right, to hang on to, which I do think makes a difference in terms of motivation, in terms of finding those extra reserves of energy in the final 20 minutes. Almost the closer the finishing line got, the better Villa became. Mm. And, uh, you know, by contrast, I think you could look at what we had on the bench and say, you know, it, it, is it as good as what a Liverpool or a Man City can introduce in terms of if your front players aren't having the game of their lives, if they're a little bit uh, off form, can you truly replace them and keep things at the same level of threat? I'm not so sure. No, I know and- we've got some players missing, but still. What did you make of the substitutions? Because... You know, I, I don't think Trossard had a good game on the left. And I know Martinelli, the final delivery, the final ball wasn't always brilliant from him. But there were a couple that I think, you know, another day he ends up with maybe a couple of assists. We talk about the Saka one in the first half. There was another one across the box and Saka took a swing and missed the ball altogether, if you remember. Mm. And just that sort of a, a, an outlet. Like, I wonder if maybe Trossard for... Uh, Jesus might have been a better sub than than Eddie for Jesus, and he already brought Trossard on, of course, for Martinelli. Um, yeah, and then Nelson comes on late. Yeah, too, uh, maybe too late. Maybe too late. But I have to say, and I'm trying, you know, sometimes I think we do a thing as Arsenal fans where we look at our academy players and we don't, we don't rate them... Funnily enough, I think a lot of people would say we overrate them, but then I think sometimes we sort of patronise them. You know, if we'd signed a player for 20 or 30 million because they're kind of new and shiny, we'd rate them above a guy who's come through the academy. I think that can happen too. But I do look at, you know, what Liverpool have got in terms of their attacking depth. People who aren't in their first 11, often people like uh, Gakpo or sometimes Diaz or Jota. Um, and just wonder, like, well, I don't wonder. I, I know that we don't have that kind of flexibility. 
and options. Do you think that there's room for there's room for more there? Yeah, there is room for more, but but I think that I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, especially um, mm. because I think there are probably other priorities in January, but and also financial questions. But yeah, I, I do think that. Um, you know, City have been starting games with Jack Grealish on the bench. You know, he cost 100 million quid. We're not in that position. Mm. Um, we don't have that depth. And sometimes, you know, City did it for years where they would have a, a first choice pair of wingers, be it, I don't know, Bernardo and Sterling, whatever. If they're not doing it, you bring on Riyad Mahrez, who is easily good enough to start probably for the other 19 teams in the league. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're doing it now with, with Grealish and Doku and, you know, they did it previously with Jesus. Liverpool have got these interchangeable front players. If Martinelli and Saka aren't at it, Trossard's a good player, but I honestly think he's so stylistically different to them. Mm. Um, we just don't have a, a true alternate, really. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I sort of prefer Trossard as the alternate to Jesus than Martinelli. Same, and, and he's closer in style, I would yeah. say, you know. Um, um and, and and the team can sort of continue to play in the same way with him in that role, which with Martelli, I don't think that's true. So, yeah, I, I'm kind of with you. I mean, part of me thought Martelli was maybe just knackered. Like, he made a lot of runs in behind, some found, some not. A lot of sprints in the game. Um, but he was the threat, and he only needed to get it right once, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there was... But it was fascinating. Like, I, you know, my mind was cast back to that sort of slightly odd... Spurs Chelsea game with you know a very different context. Spurs had nine men and were sort of stood on the halfway line, but similarly it was like watching Chelsea trying to pick that already Ooh. unlocked lock. And I and I had that feeling with Arsenal a bit here, where I was like, with the quality of players and coaching that we have, we should be able to crack this puzzle. Mm, I, I suppose the difference is though that as you said, Villa are good. Yeah, they're, they're good actually good, and Spurs were stupid, and also Chelsea are fucking terrible, as the season is, is showing us. So I sort of understand, but you know, it, it's it's way worse um, for Chelsea to have struggled as long as they did against that Tottenham one. But you know, it is that kind of puzzle that you have to you have to unlock. And there were moments, you know, you think about Jesus where he could have taken a better touch from a very good pass from Bakayo Saka. Um, yeah, it, I think got he, away I would from expect him. better from him there because he's so good. You know? Yeah, same. And there was another moment where he he almost went through and just didn't have the legs. And I wonder if that, you know, is is a question of how much he's played in the last three or four weeks, you know, since coming back from injury. Just if mm. I mean, I, I think thought, that's why he came off, to yeah. be honest. You know, there's no tactical reason you wouldn't want him on the pitch. Yeah. It must have been physical. And, and I think we've put a lot on the sort of left boot of Martin Odegaard in this game. But I almost think it was as much about the chances we didn't make, the shots we didn't take, you know? I just sure. felt with the space, the territory, the high line, there were opportunities we could and should have made that never even came to pass. Yeah, I agree. I think I think Arteta's comments about fatigue were really interesting. Like, was your team a bit fatigued today? And he, he basically said, well, you, you can't be fatigued and do what we just did at Villa Park because of how good they are and how good their form has been and, um, you know, the, the, the way they played against Manchester City. But I do wonder if there was an element of fatigue in what you've just said about chance creation and certainly 
the chances that we missed. It could be just an off day, of course. I don't think any of the front four, if you uh, want to call it that, played at the level we know they can. Um, and I do, I did wonder if fatigue was part of that and whether you know, a bit more from the bench in the last couple of games might have been a bit useful and certainly might have been more useful, um, you know, on, on Saturday where you know, the changes came relatively late. Uh, Eddie for Trossard or Eddie for Jesus and then Reese Nelson. I think he came on for Zinchenko, did he? With, with like injury time going. Mm-hmm. Um, so a couple of things, obviously, that we have to talk about. We've got this far and we haven't talked about the, the disallowed goal yeah, right at the death, which... You know, I've watched it uh, again and I've watched Match of the Day and I've read everything that there is to be read about. And while the law is an ass and all the rest, it does seem like the right decision was made. However... No, incredible x-ray vision. I Well, this is what I was going to come to. <laughs> there is no way that that referee saw that in real time and I think he's got away with one there because he guessed. He guessed. Yeah, I think that he thought it was handball in a, in the you know sort of two ricochets of the ball earlier. You know when the ball hits Havertz sort of in the chest, mm. but his hand is raised. I think the ref saw that and thought, "Oh, that looks a bit like a handball," and blew. And I think I, I'm with you. He got lucky. He got it right, but there's no way <laughs> I can believe he knew he'd got it right. No, absolutely not. And can I then ask you about the Diego Carlos elbow on Eddie and Keria, mm. which I think is a red card. I think that's the worst decision of the game because it's violent conduct. It's very deliberate violent conduct. But if you watch it, the referee is not looking at, Diego Carlos and Eddie and Ketty. He's looking at the ball, which is on the left side as we're going forward. He's looking at the ball. He's given Diego Carlos a yellow card. How? Yeah, I don't know. I can't answer that. I can't answer that. Um, but it's is it the awarding of that yellow card? That doesn't preclude VAR looking at it, right? No, it shouldn't. It shouldn't. I mean, the, the only way he can, uh, the only way he can issue a, uh, a yellow card there is somebody telling him that a yellow card offence has been committed. Yeah. And if it's the officials in the VAR booth or whatever telling him that, well, then they've got another one completely and utterly wrong because that is violent conduct. It's a deliberate elbow to the head. I mean, is it possible that the yellow card, I actually don't know, was for whatever happened afterwards? Maybe. Kind of Maybe. Uh, I, I suspect possibly, because as I'm watching the replay now and he's literally looking the other direction. Obviously, he's got assistant referees on the field who can advise him. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I think... <sighs> I think there's every chance that could have been reviewed to be a red. And, it, and yeah, it, it's a little bit reminiscent of the Bruno Gimarash one, isn't it? It is, yeah. James's part. It is. Uh, and, look, that's not to say that, you know, with 10 men, we would have then gone on to win the game. But I'm I'm really quite tired of our players being hit in the head without sure. the requisite punishment being administered by the officials. 
Maybe that's just me. to Petr Cech as well, get some of those hats for these guys. Jesus. I mean, it's just... I mean, some of the violent conduct incidents that have been overlooked, not just in our games, um, it's a bit of a worry, to be honest. But, I, you know, I think when a player deliberately looks, throws an elbow back, catches a player in the head, red card, all day long, all day yeah. long. And I, there was weirdness in the refereeing as well, wasn't there? In the, like, the final... 10 minutes, you know, he, he gave a couple of drop balls to Aston Villa at one point. There was an odd one, yeah. I think it had hit him, but it, not in a way that dramatically altered the pattern of play. But I think, unfortunately, the way the laws are written now, he has to halt the game at that point in time. Um, I, yeah, there may have been another one, but that's the one I remember because mm. Arsenal were pretty incensed about it. Yeah. Yeah, I, listen, I get it. Like, I totally get it. it you know, at a time where Arsenal and particularly Mikel Arteta, are kind of under fire on disciplinary issues. It does feel like in this game, a number of calls uh, did not go in our favour. Mm. We probably... But, but like you said at the top... Yeah. I mean, look, I, that's what Arteta said straight away. Yeah. Straight away. Like he wasn't going to be drawn on the contentious incidents, but straight away at the top of his press conference... Um, he basically said, well, you know, um, what did he say? Frustration is with the result because, uh, I'll just get the quote here. Uh, Disappointed with the results, especially the way we played. I think we deserve much more. I thought we were the better team. I haven't seen a team do to Villa what we did today since we were here in February. It wasn't enough to win it because we lacked the accuracy in the in the opponent's box to put the ball in the back of the net with the amount of situations that we generated. Good that, analysis. We should get him on the podcast. That, I mean, that you see, this is the thing. That is what we can control. That is the only thing that we can control as a football team is what we do with the chances that we make. You know, I don't uh, um, want to ignore the, the sort of the penalty that should have been, the red card that should have been, because I don't think that's helpful. But I, I'd like maybe to discuss it in a different way in the second part of the show because we've got uh, questions about that. But, mm. you know, overall... As frustrating as it is to lose, what's your feeling about the way we played and how we approach the game against Aston Villa? We've said there are things we could do better, and those are maybe make the the most of opportunities that we have, and maybe do more to to pull that Villa team apart a bit. Because I think we've got the technical quality, and as you say, the coaching staff and and the tactics to do that, and we didn't do that as well as we probably should have. But we lost 1-0. It was a very good goal from Villa. You know, we should have got at least something from this game. And we're not sitting here this morning trying to figure out how we fix this. How do we, you know, how do we come up with a solution that means we won't lose these games in the future? And I think, you know, different day, you score at least one of those chances. Or maybe you get the penalty and the game changes or you come away with a point and all the rest of it. So I'm frustrated to lose, obviously, but I'm not like massively concerned about the way we've played. Like if we'd gone there and conceded 22 shots to Aston Villa the way Manchester City did while only having two shots ourselves... I'd be a lot more worried about uh, what went down. Same, same. I, I don't think there was a lot wrong with this performance. And I think that's partly why it's so frustrating. I think Arteta summed it up perfectly. I mean, we really restricted Villa. They had a couple of chances in the second half, kind of on the break as we had to chase it a bit more. Um, I think Ryan made another decent save. But, you know, there wasn't 
a great deal of threat from them, which is unusual. Kept Dolly Watkins very quiet apart from that one moment. So, yeah, I think we learned our defence, our control. All of that is there. None of it is a mirage. And at the other end of the pitch, we did create chances. It's As we said, it's not like, you know, we're, we're saying we didn't necessarily do enough with the possession or with the space we were afforded, but there were clear chances in this game, which is more, I think, you could say, than you could say about our performance at St. James's. I think, yes. I think this was better. Literally, the, the, the reservation I have, you know, if, if there was nothing in that performance really that makes me think, oh, we can't do this. We can't win this league. The one reservation I have, as I alluded to earlier on, is just that thing of being able to say, you know what, it's not happening for these attackers today. Let's pull the roulette lever, mm. chuck these two or three guys on of similar calibre and see if it's their day. And I just, I think City and Liverpool can do that. And I just don't think we can. And that's that's my sort of nagging doubt. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Maybe when we get some players back from injury, you know, you wonder what uh, somebody with the, look, maybe I'm going back too far in time, um, but Emile Smith-Rowe, what a player of his ability and his movement and his sharpness can do. I've just seen a message literally right now from Andrew Allen telling me that Smith-Rowe is in training. Um, so that's good news. He could be, that would be maybe very back tomorrow. News. That would be very welcome. But yeah, I, I think you're right there that we are very dependent on uh, the front four clicking and delivering and producing. And, you know, I think Eddie off the bench, you know, is not necessarily an option that, that gives me a great deal of, um, what's the word? Confidence in our ability to be able to get something from a game. No, I mean, look, we've got to give Trossard his dues. He's been very good and he's been really effective coming off the bench at times. But in almost any other attacking change that we make, almost among the front six, I don't necessarily feel it's more likely that we'll score once mm. we've made that change. Yeah. And that's that's not great. If you look at the hallmarks of like the top teams, they always have those kind of alternates. You know, even our own great teams, the Invincibles... You know, bringing out, being able to bring on people like Wiltor, Carnu, you know, who could provide such big moments in games. Mm. And yeah, I, I just don't think we've got that variety. I think, you know, the fact that Reese Nelson didn't come on until the 90 something minute yeah. is also an indication that Mikel Arteta probably doesn't have as much faith in the options on the bench as, as we would like. Yeah, if we had Jota, for example, on that bench, he would have been on with half an hour to go, mm. I think. And, you know, these players, they don't have to be Messi or, you know, Ronaldo or or even Erling Haaland or anything like that. But just someone like that who's, like, got a real proven track record, Premier League level, who you know mm -hmm. can win you a, win you a game. And I, listen, I know some of these players on the bench have won us games, but have they done it with the consistency that we need if we're really to be the best? Yeah. And yeah. that is what we're talking about now. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, we're probably there sooner than anybody expected, but th those are the questions we're having to ask ourselves. We need a Santa Claus to bring us Pedro Neto in January. <laughs> is that what you're saying? <laughs>
<laughs> okay, well, look, will we take a break here? Because we've got plenty more to get into. Um, we'll, yeah, yeah, let's take a break. Why not? All right, we'll be back with your questions and more in part two right after this. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI powered all star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at Arsblog. Also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. Let me start with this one, uh, just to sort of lift the mood a little bit before we get before we get all grumpy and uh, upset about things again. Sam, who's uh, at, well, Sam76, who's at StuartAM76 on Twitter, says, Morning, gents. Can we please take a minute to celebrate Arsenal battering Chelsea 4-1 in the WSL? A well-deserved win, a fantastic performance with players returning from long-term injuries and strength and depth. Do you think they can win the league this year? <laughs> I, I don't see any reason why they couldn't. I'm sure I'll be asked to find some sooner or later. But yeah, no, I, I think they look fantastic. I mean, are Arsenal's can... women too female to win the WSL? <laughs> Pretty resounding win over their, well, over the league leaders, you know, in, in Chelsea at the present yeah. point in time. Arsenal draw level on points, at least for now. Um, amazing result. Great occasion, 59,000, more than 59,000 fans in attendance. I mm. think it's a WSL record. Um, yeah, brilliant. brilliant. And it could, have been, it could have been more, should have been more in terms of goals because there were so many chances for Arsenal in that second half as well. Where... Well, there you go. Not ruthless enough men or the women, but they did yeah. a fair bit better. And I have to say, it is nice. I do like it when... Uh, let's say one of the teams plays on the Saturday. If, if they don't get the result 
that they that you want. You've mm. got a sort of chance at um, redemption, a bit almost. of redemption, yeah. yeah, the next day. And uh, the women certainly provided that this weekend. Yeah, fantastic. And then, like you say, they're uh, you know level on points with Chelsea at the top of the table, and it big looks, players coming back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and it looks like the squad is big enough and deep enough. They don't have uh, Champions League, of course, which. You know, is a blow, obviously, but maybe a little bit of an advantage as well. Uh, they do play in the Conti Cup, but you can probably rotate a bit more in the Conti Cup than you could do in the in the uh, in the Champions League. So maybe for these WSL games and these big WSL fixtures, they will be, you know, a little fresher or may have that little bit of an advantage, which could be great. And of course, you can catch up with uh, all the reaction, all the game previews, the best coverage of Arsenal women. You will find it uh, from Tim Stillman and the team over on Ars Blog News. So if you're looking um, if you're looking to, to get involved and to get more content, that is exactly where you will find it. Let me ask you this one. Um, it comes from the Discord Falkened, who says, um, he says, goodly morning, made better by the Arsenal women, amazing performance. Yes. But then he goes on to say, my question is, are we seeing an improved Kai Havertz? He seems to have that fight now and is playing pretty well of late. And I think if we talk about our front four or five, I think he was probably the best uh, out of all of them uh, on Saturday at Villa Park. Yeah, I agree with you. thought he was very good. Um, Speckled Jim said was Saturday night Kai's first genuine man of the match. Uh, I, I guess he means from the Arsenal contingent, at mm. least. I, I thought he was excellent. I, as I say, in the first half, he did really well winning the ball in Aston Villa's territory and setting us away a couple of times. He obviously had the big moment late on that might have been an equaliser. And actually... I think... Uh, but for his fingertips, I mean, what a, does he need to like slice off his own fingertips to be a more effective <laughs> player? Is that what we're saying? Yeah, I know, right? We'll see him in the next game playing with two clenched fists uh, just to prevent anything like that happening again. But he actually does really well in that situation. You know, when the ball bounces down and ricochets, I know some people suggested Eddie might have poked it in, but I think it's actually Kai who sort of reacts well to bundle it over the line. Um and a threat at the back post, again, in that situation, which, you know, he's mm. becoming increasingly. I thought this was really good from him. And, uh, yeah, might have had a goal, might have had an assist for Odegaard. Worked really hard. Uh, yeah, I- I'm really, really pleased for him to see him sort of starting to click now and, and yeah. do all parts of the game. Yes, agree. I think the Brentford goal was a big, big moment for him. It really was. Because, you know, there were questions before... The international break uh, and when he went away to Germany, maybe the deployment of Kai Havertz at left back by Germany has been the thing that sparked him into life for Arsenal. Who knows? But, uh, you know, I think we are seeing a guy who is, you know, uh, creating things. There's some end product, obviously goals. Like you said, there should have been an assist for Martin Odegaard in this game. But I think as well, there is, there's just something more to his game. There is more drive. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but do you remember that moment in the game? What game was it? Was it the Forest game where he received, or Fulham maybe, where he received a pass inside the opposition avenue, played it straight back, and there was consternation because that's not what you want to see from a player in that position. 
I think what we're seeing now, uh, and we saw it a couple of times against Aston Villa, we saw it in the previous game as well against Luton, is that when he's receiving the ball in those areas, his his thought is to turn and go towards goal. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really positive development, um, maybe a very simple thing uh, to give the guy credit for, but there's confidence in the way that he's playing now. And, um, you know, maybe we underestimate sometimes the the difficulty perhaps of, of changing from one club to another. I know it's not a big move. He's from one London club to another. Um, he's played in the Premier League for the last however long it is. So there's no adaptation in, in that sense. But sometimes a change of scenery can take a little while to get used to. And I hope now that this is the kind of Kai Havertz that we see from now on at Arsenal. Because if it is, you know, I think this is a guy who's gonna who's going to contribute on a regular basis in a number of different ways. So I'm like you, I'm very happy for him. Yeah, it's a change of club, a change of position as well. Mm. Um, you know, there are people who will tell you that that Kai Havertz has been doing a lot of these things since he came into the club and, and what's so. shifting is kind of, yeah. you know, the exterior perspective on him. Uh, there may be some truth in that. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I tend to be with you. I think he does look a bit more dynamic and I don't think it's just because I'm looking at him a bit more kindly because he scored a couple of goals. I think confidence has enormous impact on footballers' performances and we're seeing it sort of course through him at this particular moment in time. Uh, so, yeah, I'm enjoying watching him and uh, looking forward to seeing him again probably next weekend. Mm. Okay. Uh, Let's have a question. So, Paul W said, Hi guys, are we overrating Martinelli? Is his lack of end product a worry? For what it's worth, I think it is. Are we overrating him? I don't know about that, but has he maybe fallen a little bit behind where I expected him to be in terms of end product this season? Yes. Mm-hmm. A little bit. Two uh, Premier League goals from 14 appearances. Mm. I, I expect more from him. I do, yeah. I, I expect more. I think he is below where I thought he uh, would be and should be. Seven goal involvements in... 19 games, 18 games if you exclude the Community Shield. So it's seven goal involvements in 18 games. Uh, like, like most of the Arsenal attack, he has fared better in the Champions League. Yeah, I mean, he's two goals and an assist in the Champions League in three appearances and two goals and two assists in the Premier League in 14 appearances. I think he is capable of a lot more than that. I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but am I massively worried about it? Not really, because I think he's demonstrated that he's got the ability to um, to score goals on a fairly consistent basis, and I think I think he's capable of doing that again. Um, but maybe this sort of ties in a little bit to what you were talking about with that other option as a forward. Where look, I don't think there's any doubt that every time Gabriel Martinelli goes out on that pitch, he gives a hundred percent for Arsenal in terms of how he plays, you know, how determined he is, the drive he shows to get forward, his bravery, you know, in receiving the ball in in difficult areas and knowing he's going to get kicked and all the rest of it. So I'm not saying for a second that he is uh, complacent about his place, but I do wonder if having another player in the squad who can come in and maybe start a few games here and there 
just creates an extra percentage or two or three of of competition or something, you know, when a player is going through a little spell like this. Yeah. I, I don't think he had his best game, Martinelli. You know, this this is a game that you would say suits him. If it plays to anyone's strengths, it's surely his, I think, in terms of his direct running, his ability to get in behind. Um, we've seen him do it to great effect for us in the past, you know, get onto the end of through balls and finish. And it didn't quite happen for him here. Um, I don't want that to allow me to sort of, to sort of, uh, make me be more critical of his overall performance this season, which I think has been largely good, even if the end product side of it, he would he would definitely want to bring up. All right. Well, look, we can't avoid the question of officiating and referees and PGMOL and all the rest mm. of it. Our, our manager was sitting in the stands on Saturday evening. Um, an unusual place for him to be would have given him a good perspective on the game, as you mentioned, but that's not where he wants to be. And no. we've seen, you know, his comments before the game, I thought were very interesting. You know, when he talked about the yellow card he got for celebrating the Luton goal, thought the Luton manager was very good as well. Uh, when he was, he was asked about it, he said, well, I'd have been crowd surfing if that was me. Um, yeah. You know, but we saw at the weekend other managers outside their technical area, other managers celebrating goals. And Arteta, you know, when he said, yeah, by the letter of the law, that's a yellow card, but that means it should apply to all of us. I think he used the word we. The word we in this context is is very important. So he was in the stands and there's a penalty decision that doesn't go your way. And there's a goal that's disallowed and there's a red card that isn't given. And actually, I think I think Villa were slightly lucky not to be down to 10 men earlier because Luca Dean went right through the back of Bakayo Saka when he was already on a yellow card right. and didn't get a second yellow. And when you see some of the yellow cards that have been dished out this weekend, uh, I think he's extremely fortunate. But this is an ongoing question. Um Jay on Twitter, who's at J2 underscore 1983, says, how can Arteta turn the ref situation around for the better when it comes to 50-50 decisions for Arsenal? Genuinely, what do you think the solution is? I'd be keen to learn. And on the Discord, we had a very similar question from Brathnock, who says, given the decision bias we have seen and can't control, do you think Arteta needs to pivot and play the long game now for greater benefit and try and extract himself from the media hotspot he's in using more conciliatory language, you win some, you lose some, etc., rather than highlighting the absolute incompetence of PGMOL? I think that I think this is fascinating, genuinely. Yeah, really I know question. I know people get tired of refereeing discussions, but I do think it is one of the big issues that the Premier League, at least, is facing right now. Yeah, I, I, it's. Uh, I think it will exist, to be honest, as long as we have human beings refereeing. I, I, I was talking with a guy over the weekend who works in the city. He works in like investments. I don't understand his job, Andrew. I, that's probably clear already. Numbers and that. Numbers. That's, that's not us. And I was chatting to him, and he was telling me about he did a course in it he studied it you know whether it was like i don't know what the course is called but he, he did some sort of qualification before he went into stocks and shares and all that nonsense 
And he, and I was like, wow, that must be interesting. You know, I imagine it's a lot of numbers. And he was like, yeah, it is a lot of numbers because, you know, data is what it is these days and we have more access to data than ever before and powerful computers. But 30% of his course is psychology. Hmm. And I thought that was so interesting and pertinent, kind of, to the discussion of officiating with football. We have greater access to technology than ever before, but there's still a huge psychological component in all those decisions. And it's almost impossible, well, it is impossible to avoid. And, and while I don't believe in a kind of active conspiracy against Arsenal or any other team, to be honest with you, I do believe in bias. I do believe that we all have biases that we carry with us in everything we do in life. And as much as we might strive to divorce ourselves from them, you know, they can be quite deep rooted and they influence our choices. Um, and so I don't find it remotely beyond the realms of possibility to suggest that there may be among some officials, a lingering bias against Mikel Arteta. Yeah. I think that's eminently plausible. And I think, you know, quite easy to rationalise, I suppose, given A, the way he's been quite vocal in opposition of them, although we may think he's right in that, and B, the fact that he's sort of subsequently to that become a kind of poster boy almost for dissent. Um, I, I think it's kind of inevitable. And I'd be fascinated to sit down with Nicola Teta and ask him, you know, he'll never talk about this publicly but does he regret speaking out as vehemently as he did like has it worked for him see i i'm not sure that he would regret it because perhaps not yeah i don't know the answer because ultimately if in the initial fury of uh, the post newcastle stuff his choice of words could have been better maybe that's something he would say he might do differently right mm. Because I think ultimately that is what he is being judged on. But everything he has said after that is about constructive improvement of standards. Yeah. And he, he says he has sort of adjusted his position, I would say, to be about that. Maybe that was what he meant after the Newcastle game. But I think, yeah, probably. But, you know, in the, the, emotion, in the heat of the, the moment, yeah, exactly. You know, he went a bit heavy-handed on the language that he used. But more than once since then, he's talked about how, you know, um, discussions and um, acknowledging errors and mistakes. And he said, look, we all make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. Let's just try and do things better and let's have conversations which allow us to do things better. I think that is not a position that he would change. I don't believe yeah. he would. But I'm with you in that I think he and by um, by uh, connection, Arsenal are being refereed differently because of the comments that he made. I, I believe that. Uh, and I don't think it's like, right, well, we're out to get them. Um, let's give every 50-50 to the opposition or anything like that. But I, I, I it feels to me like our games are being refereed 
or officiated differently because of the comments that he made. And I don't think there's any way to sort of row that back. And and the unfortunate part about this is that they have, in the way that they've dealt with those comments, made it now impossible for Mikel Arteta to basically say anything. Because after the after the game the other day, he was asked about the incidents and all he would say is it's clear and obvious. Clear and obvious. We all know what he means, but he's not going to go into the nuts and bolts of it. And I think that's a shame. I think it's a shame that managers don't feel like they can speak honestly about decisions that are made in games because they will be punished. I don't think that's healthy. Not for the game of football, not for the Premier League. It's There's no other reason for the PGMOL to do this other than to avoid the kind of scrutiny that should be in place for officials and, and for referees. And by shutting it down, it tells you they're not open to those constructive conversations. They're not open to the idea that referees and their performances should be under the spotlight. Everybody in football, everybody who works in football to, you know, to one extent or the other, their livelihood depends on their performance. If a manager doesn't do the job, he's sacked. If a player doesn't score goals, he's sold or dropped, you know? across the board, every single person involved in football, they live and die metaphorically by their performance levels. But that's not the same with officials and and with referees. And I thought Roy Hodgson's comments over the weekend were really sad. I don't know if you saw them, but um, he basically said, the way the game is, when I walk away, I won't miss it. There's a guy who spent a lifetime in football. So yeah, I, I I see I see your point. I I don't fully agree. Like I, I do think that you know footballers make mistakes, and you know that doesn't mean you drop them always. David Ryan made two mistakes against Luton. He played against Aston Villa. Like there has to be a kind of base of trust if true constructive dialogue is to happen. Sure, you know. You don't get better at anything by just saying you've made an error. That's it. Well, I mean, they You're do corrupt, that though. You they know? Do, yeah, they they do it though. You know, a referee makes yeah, an error, and then they send well. an, they send Anthony Anthony Taylor or whoever it is to referee a game in the championship, and he makes a balls of that game too, and then he comes back and referees another game in in the Premier League. I mean, what what I don't believe is that there is a process in place for for this to take place. Like, I don't think there is a process for that constructive dialogue to exist between managers and the PGMOL that they will then take on board and and try and implement things that change the game. Like, did you see the, 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 the part of the Hudson interview, right? He's talking about how when his coaches stand up to... Um, you know, to talk to him in the game, the fourth official is screaming at them to sit down. Did we ever, ever have a conversation about how one of the worst things in football is coaches standing in the technical area talking to their manager? So they're they're fixing problems that don't exist and creating more problems um, in the process. You know, this sort of hard line, you are children, we will treat you like children, and... No good can come of that when you're dealing with grown men, with adults. If you treat them like children, 
it's just going to cause uh, enmity and and uh, problems because that that's really not the way to have uh, any kind of relationship. You know, if you're a school teacher and you've got a class full of children, that's very different. You know, why why has Mikel Arteta's charge been hanging over him for four or five weeks now at this point? Yeah, sure. I, I don't know the answer. To that. I don't know the answer to that either. But the longer it goes on, the more um, more you might think there's something ne- nefarious. Is that the right word? But if they can deal with things in a week or two weeks or less than that, why is it taking so long for this? Is there going to be a you know a game ban coming in? I just feel like you know you can't look at some of the decisions that have happened in our games and not feel the comments that Mikel Arteta made have played a part in some of those decisions. Yeah, I think that's possible. I do think that's possible. I I can't say I know it to be true, but you know it, it's I find it I don't find it implausible. I also just think that, like, I don't know if I agree about managers post-game. Like, ultimately, I don't think most managers are in a position to talk constructively after a game. I think it's almost too emotional at that point, especially when they lose. You know, by all means, they can express themselves, but I'm not sure that that's always constructive. Um, Well, that's that's on them, though. You know, I I think... I think it's the issue I have is that they now feel like they can't because they're afraid of you know having to watch a game from the stands, which is not what they want to do. Yeah, but if Mikel Arteta was coming out after a game and saying, "Well, I listen, I understand the full context and the mistakes happen, blah blah blah," but I feel you know that's not what's happening. What's happening is coming out and saying it's a disgrace. Like I can see that that's problematic. Yes. Um, you know, his pre-match press conference tone, like all managers, is very different to his post-match. So I'm not sure we should just say managers should have free reign to slag off the officials, in short. You know, well, that, I, I think that will undermine the whole process. That's not really what I mean, though. I don't mean that, like, they can come out and, and call the officials a disgrace or call it embarrassing or whatever. That's not quite what I'm talking about. I just feel like there are attempts, not just by the way the PGMOL do things, but you know certain sections of the media as well, who thrive off the kind of drama that exists in these uh, moments and press conferences and all the rest, but to sort of gatekeep any kind of discussion about refereeing standards, you know, where we oh, it's a very difficult job, you know, it's a hard job being a referee and all the rest of it, you know, just let them get on with it. And look, it's not as if. It's not as if um, discussions about referees and decisions are a new thing. It's always been there. But where we are now, I think we've got a real problem because every week it's something. Every week there's a new drama, there's a new controversy, and every week the referees and the officials are at the center of it. And I, you know, I realize we play a part in that because you know, we're part of the media cycle for many people, right? Um, but you can't ignore what's happening either. You know, the, you can, and as we did in the first half of the show, say that Arsenal's defeat to Aston Villa was primarily down to Arsenal not taking the chances that they had. But penalty could be a good chance too. And playing against 10 men for the last 10 minutes, that might also be a good chance. So, you know, it's possible to acknowledge your own failings, but also look at the wider picture and the wider um, 
situation involving officials and and be concerned, which is, you know, where I am with that. I'm just sort of worried that more and more football is going in a direction that's not healthy for the game. And um, I agree with that, but I think the discussion is 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 probably the biggest culprit in it. That's genuinely my opinion. I think referees get more right now statistically than they ever have, but the narrative around it is dramatically different. And yeah, that, that that's sort of where I am with it. But but are are they not getting things wrong in a more spectacular way too? Like because of the technology, because of um you know the way uh, games are officiated now. Like we're seeing things and we've seen things this season, for example, that we've never seen before. Yeah, yeah. But I wouldn't have brought the technology in. Like Without I Gini. think you're applying <laughs> a measure of objectivity to a subjective sport yeah. refereed by human beings. There's always going to be something wrong. I think we could find an episode for a club podcast from every Premier League team this season where they would say, I think the referees are against us. I think we have to be conscious of our own subjectivity. And I think we have to be responsible in uh, in a world where it, which is more fertile for conspiracy than ever, I think. I think we have to step out of our echo chamber and be like, is this actually happening to us? <laughs> or is this just football as it's always been? And listen, maybe I'm more exposed to other clubs or whatever it might be, but I think that I think it's a bit of a dangerous train of thought, to be honest. I'm prepared to accept or admit that there are human biases that can influence things. I think Mikel Arteta's uh, comments may have played a part in how Arsenal are, are officiated. I think that's plausible, but. I, 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 yeah, I'm just not in the same place as the rest of the online world around Arsenal about referees. I think that I think that we I think that we're wrong, basically. I think we're wrong if we think they're against us. I don't think it works like that. Hmm. And and, and when, I will take Roy Hodgson or Mikel Arteta much more seriously when they speak in this way when they've won a game. Oh, I think that's a great point. And I think that's what's absolutely incumbent on managers. If, you know, when I'm talking about them being able to express themselves and be honest and to talk openly about you know, what they've seen, whether it's their teams or the officiating or anything else, you know, I think it is incumbent on Mikel Arteta. If he really is committed to this idea of constructive uh, dialogue and improvement of standards, which he's talked about, he has to acknowledge when things go for Arsenal that shouldn't have gone for Arsenal. Yeah, but he. But I don't think he will. Like, this is what managers say. They say they want better officiating, but that's not what they mean. Say they want what two, they two is, goalkeepers. <laughs> <laughs> what they mean is they want decisions to go their way. That's what they all mean. Mm. I mean, Postacoglu said it. He was like, don't trust us on this. And I think that's right. Like, they just want their team to win. And that's what we want. We have to be honest as well and say, that's what we want. We have to be honest and say, there are countless games where we win 2-0 and in the 70th minute, maybe the opposition should have had a penalty. And we go, well, got away with that one and never speak about it again. You know, mm. we're biased. Of course we are. 
Of course we are. So I, I, I do think that it's kind of interesting to an extent, but so I think it's dangerous as well. So, I think it's a dangerous way to think. So what does Arteta need to do now? Does he back down on his desire for referees to be better, for open and constructive um, communication between managers and players and the PGMOL? And does he just never say anything about a refereeing decision again? Yeah, I Do, don't know. I mean, you know, it used to be the case. <laughs> the old school of thought used to be if you spoke out about it, you might they might sort of balance it out for you, which isn't good refereeing. But, you know, people used to say, oh, Fergie slags off the referees and then he gets and buys himself a few decisions. Mm. Um, that's not good officiating, but that's kind of what used to happen. Now, I just feel like I, I have no idea. Like, does he toe the line? Part of me thinks it's too late. Part of me thinks it's too late. Like, unfortunately, rightly or wrongly, I feel like, the wider football discourse have made a decision about who Mikel Arteta is and who he is regarding refereeing decisions. You know, that the perception of Mikel Arteta outside of Arsenal is that he is uh, petulant and over-emotional and goes mental when things don't go his way. And um, I think it'll be very, very difficult for him to change that. Hmm. Well... We've got a good chunk of the season left to see how it all plays out. And um, what do you what do you think he should do? I think he should continue to talk about it if he feels that that is the right thing to do. Yeah, but to do so with language that can't come back to bite him in the arse. That would or, be great. Yeah, you know. I think he was obviously really, really emotional and very, very angry after the after the uh, Newcastle game. But but I, that's why I think what, you know when he's asked against Villa and he says I'm not going to say anything. Part of me's like, isn't that the right decision? Because mm. he if he's really upset and angry, he's only going to make it worse. You know. Mm. But. Uh, it's really hard, though. It's really hard. Like, imagine how you feel when it is your team, your livelihood, sure. your responsibility, and you feel like you have been wronged uh, and you're angry and upset about the defeat or layered on top of that. To find words that are constructive is really difficult. Yes. As we know ourselves. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. And I don't – I kind of feel like if there is that bias there – what can he do? Present the referee with a bouquet of flowers at the end of every game. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, how the nice hell hamper. do you turn that round? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but, you know, I don't think this is a thing that's going away, um, unfortunately. so. No, I agree. I, I agree with that. Um, I had a question about the women, but we've sort of talked about the women. Okay. Um, I've got a good one here if you want. Go on. From Chicken Wings Nelson on the Discord. And he says, sadly morning, guys. Maybe that guy will tune back in now if it's sadly morning rather than goodly morning. <laughs> he said, do you think having more teams in the title race helps us or hurts our chances? My glass half full take is that it will, it will result in less pressure on Arsenal uh, than last season if more teams are seen as contenders. Mm. 
I think it could help. I think, obviously, one of the ways it could help is there's more teams to sort of take points off each other. Yeah. Um, that That is the most useful aspect of it. There is also a bit less focus. Uh, I don't think it hurts us to kind of go under the radar a little bit. Um, but it, I think ultimately it comes down to the strength of those teams, you know, and how good you believe Liverpool and City to be. I, I think that is... I know City are in fourth and Villa are in third. I don't think Aston Villa... Famous I, last I, words, is this where you're going? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I really don't, though, think they're in it. Is that is that ridiculous? I mean, as I say, we're 16 games in now, which is two more than we were at at Christmas last year. Um, I don't think it's ridiculous, to be honest. I think Villa are... Maybe they're doing a bit of an Arsenal in uh, last season in that they are exceeding expectations. But I don't think they've got the depth to keep it up in the uh, in the longer term. And I do wonder, as I said in the first half, I'm not sure playing this way is is sustainable. I think it's going to be great and has been great until it isn't. And then I think Villa will probably revert to the mean a little bit. I think they're definitely top six, but I can't see them continuing the title chase. No, I do think it will be between those those big three. Um, but even that dilutes the pressure a little bit. But, you know, equally, mm. it means rather than just, you know, two games against City feeling like they're absolutely defining and decisive and six pointers for the title... You know, there's two games against Liverpool to consider and one not far away at all now. Mm, that's a big one. That is a really big game. That yeah. is I, a big it's one. made weirdly bigger by losing at Villa. I think, you know, I, I think of those two fixtures, I kind of in my head thought Arsenal could probably afford to lose one. Mm. I'd, I, yeah, if they were to lose again at Anfield, which, you know, history suggests there's a decent chance could happen. It would really take the wind of our sails, out of our sails, just uh, over that Christmas period. Well, let me ask you this one, because we did have a slightly associated question with that from John Larkin on the Discord. He said, uh, badly morning, gents. Uh, our three biggest away games this season, Chelsea, Newcastle, Villa, have seen us produce our worst attacking performances, resulting in only one point from nine. Trying to ignore the refereeing incidents in all three games. How worried are you with our performances away from home in the big games this season? We lacked a cutting edge in all three games and still have our toughest top six matches to play, uh, left to play rather, in City and Liverpool. And obviously Liverpool coming up the weekend after next. Well, that's a good question. I hadn't hmm. thought of it like that. I mean, I would say Arsenal went to Seville in what looked like a very tough uh, away game and, and, and won well. Obviously the Champions League is a bit of a different beast. Um Hmm. Yeah, I mean, maybe that is maybe that is a bit of a concern. Uh, I mean, they are hard places to go, right? I don't think it's reasonable. A lot, a lot of people made this point after St. James's Park. You know, I think I was one of the crowds saying we need to create more. And a lot of people said, well, yeah, but you don't often create a lot in these games. And I think we have to be realistic about that as well. Um, and we did score twice at Chelsea. Mm-hmm. Very late, though. Very late, yeah. Mm. Um, and we, and we did we sort of huffed that. and puffed a bit, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe that is something that we still 
have to do. I mean, I'm trying to think back to last season and some of the big away games. Obviously, we we won at Chelsea. We, lost. we were pegged back late, late on at Anfield, weren't we? Mm-hmm. Um, lost heavily at Man City. Uh, won at Spurs. Lost at, at Man United, didn't we? Lost at Man United. So mm. I, I do, yeah, I do feel like with, so for example, with City, home or away, I feel like they're kind of, the same. Maybe that's just because they haven't got much of a home atmosphere at the Etihad. <laughs> but like, I kind of feel like there's not a huge gap in their performance. Maybe that's, again, my exterior view. But I do feel like we haven't yet done that thing that they have consistently done of like going away to Old Trafford and getting big results. Yeah, We've not really sort of reached that point. Uh, you know, City are capable of going to Old Trafford and winning like 3-0. They've won 5 nil there before, I think. You know, they've battered them. And, uh, you know, still when Arsenal go to Old Trafford, I feel a kind of trepidation. It's because we just don't have that track record of sort of going away in the big matches and and doing it consistently. Mm. Yeah. But it's, it's something to keep an eye on, especially with Anfield so soon. Now. Yeah. I mean, the thing I would say, though, is like the Villa game – fine margins 1-0 as we said we should have got something from that game Newcastle maybe not a game we deserve to win but certainly not a game we deserve to lose and maybe that's a different uh, narrative or we're thinking differently about our away games we'd be saying you know we haven't lost on the road um, in any of these big games you know but fine margins often dictate how you feel about things and um, you know when you don't score the goals uh, you pay the price. So, mm. what about this? Hale and Harula says, "Morning, gents. If one of Arsenal's injured players, Party, Tommy Asu, Smithrow, Vieira, could magically be fit in time for Brighton on Sunday, which would you want back?" Party, Smithrow, Tommy, Tommy Asu, and Vieira. Vieira for Brighton on Sunday, and then obviously subsequent to that. Yeah. Like if you, you're telling me this player is fully fit, 100%, ready to go, and in good form, Smithrow. Yeah. Smithrow. Yeah. I, I think he, well, Even with the threat of Liverpool and, you know, maybe wanting Tommy Asu back for that. Maybe, but like, why are Liverpool so strong? Because... They have lots of players who can score goals and they've got players, as you said, in the first half of this show, yeah. or maybe it was the second half, I can't remember, but players who can come off the bench yeah. and impact and where games. are they weak as well, Andrew? Where are they weak? Yeah. At the back. They are weak at the back, but their strength up top offsets their weakness at the back, mm. you know? And I'm looking at Smithrow as somebody who, if he's fully fit and in good form, is capable of producing moments that perhaps other players in this team uh, can't or don't or haven't, if that makes sense. I think he's just a different string to our attacking bow. I think that's a good choice. And I commend you for your ongoing faith in his talent, which is substantial. Unquestionable. His body, different. Yeah, see, see, I'm in a bit of a different place where I... I have slightly lost the belief in Emil Smith-Rowe at Arsenal, mm. which which I hate saying because I love him as a player. I think he's fantastically talented. But it's just, for me, it's just been too long 
since I saw it consistently. So I need him to produce something that sparks that belief in me again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get that. I get that. But, you know, this is a hypothetical situation yeah. where we can adjust the parameters to suit ourselves. And I'm taking a top uh, top form Smith Rowe straight back into the team and having a big impact uh, against Brighton and hopefully against Liverpool. Although, you know, I would not turn my nose up at uh, a fully fit Tommy Asu either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, listen, I, I'm with you. I think Smith Rowe is a, a great choice. It's just interesting. I sort of, my instinct wouldn't have been to pick it because in my head, he's sort of become something else. Yeah, yeah. You know? no, I and I, I want to I see that Smith Rowe that I love. And wow, if we could get that Smith Rowe back, I'd be incredibly excited. All right. I think it's time to, uh, to, to wrap this one up. Although I did enjoy this one on the Discord from Zach Taze who said, I love a good pantomime villain in a football match, but it really fucks me off that Saka gets booed wherever we go because he gets the shit kicked into him. Question. <laughs> Question mark at the end. I just had this, uh, This, I mean, I've heard of people getting the shit kicked out of them, but, but you know, a bunch of football players literally kicking shit into Bakayo Saka was an image I couldn't pass up. So, Wow. Yeah. Well, when that happens... Um the referee will just turn a blind, blind eye, presumably. They will, of course, yeah. yeah. yeah they're in league with big shit, you see. Um, <laughs> but I do get the point, though, about Saka getting booed, you know, the other day at Villa, because why? He got kicked around the pitch and all yeah, of a sudden no, he gets booed. so you know, annoying. That's... I mean, so ridiculous. Um, and I would have loved that offside goal to be onside and him to have really stuck it to them for that. Yeah, but, and then kick some go. shit into Emmy Martinez. But hey, <laughs> it's gone. We have to let it go. And... Um, yeah. deal with game it. Game on Tuesday. Game on Tuesday. There is a big game, of course, tomorrow. Well, big game. It's a game in the Champions League. It's more of just a game, I would say. How, yeah, before we go, how widely do you think Mikel Arteta will rotate for this one? Yeah. Uh, not as wildly as we all hope and expect. That would <laughs> be my thinking as well, but hopefully more than that. That's Yeah, that's listen, I, I mean... Great news that he must be throws back in training. It'd be amazing to see him involved in some capacity. Uh, we spoke about Rule Waters last week. We did. I'd like to see him play. Yeah. Um, I think Aaron Ramsdale will make his first Champions League appearance. Hope so. Jorginho, uh, Elneny. Yeah. Nelson and Kedia. Yeah. But I, I expect there'll be some players out there that people will be annoyed by. I, I just, knowing Mikel... Like if he's if the choice for him is a seventeen year old or a first team player, I just think he'll go first team in that in those in, in those instances where we're a bit light. But yeah, we'll see, won't we? Yeah, we will. I mean, there are a couple of positions where there really isn't any uh, alternative yeah. or strength in depth, um, which is you know a bit of a concern. But at the back, it's tricky. Isn't yeah, it, isn't it really is. It really you is. Know, and does he want to throw kids to the wolves there in that respect? No, I, I, don't, I don't think know. that's. I don't think that's the right thing to do. Um, yeah. It's still the Champions League yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I, I do. There are certain players who you really hope come on. We should be able to give them a rest. I believe Sack and Martinelli are not in training today, so it's wow. Okay, you know, well that tells you something. Yeah. And Gabi Jesus, you know, he doesn't need to be playing this one. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Uh, save them. Get some fresh legs for Brighton, and hopefully, we get ourselves back on track and respond well to a one-nil defeat away from home, as we did last time we lost one-nil away from home. So, sure. fingers crossed on that. All right, we will talk later. During during the week, we will have uh, an episode of the 34. You looking back at all the weekend's Premier League action. Uh, 
nine games only in the Premier League this weekend. A uh, bit of a surprise, but there you go. Uh, we'll talk about those a little later on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash arsebog. For now, uh, take it easy and we'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.